Please take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Second Chronicles 24. This is the second sermon in our warning series. Last week, on Sunday morning, we preached our first sermon, and then in the evening we had the second part of our um, wives' sermon. And this week, we had in the morning, of course, speaking to the youth. And then this evening, we'll be talking again about a warning, both to parents and to children, about passing the torch as we continue our family emphasis weeks uh, between Mother's Day and Father's Day, which of course will finish next week, as next week is Father's Day. And I'm going to tell you another story from the Old Testament. I did this in the warning week last week. Even this morning was a little bit more story-oriented than perhaps normal. Normal, Normally I'd be teaching through a text very thoroughly, but as we hit these broader topics, we, we are, are doing things just a little bit differently. And I'm going to tell you a story. This story will culminate with an important warning, both for parents and children. It talks about another king of Judah. This morning we talked about King Solomon. Last week we also spoke of a king in Judah. This week we will again. And of all the kings that are recorded in the southern kingdom's history, this king is perhaps the one that came to power through the most unique and tragic of circumstances in the southern kingdom. His name was Joash. This king had a pretty rotten childhood, in a manner of speaking. And as we step into this, the question arises, what is my goal this evening? What do I want you to glean from this? Well, it'll be twofold. For parents, I want to warn you about the dangers of failing to help your children transition your faith to their faith. The danger of failing to help your child transition from the the faith that you hold to having their own faith. It can be a difficult transition and one that perhaps we need a little guidance to help our children make. And then second, for the children in the room, If you are a born-again believer, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you have been saved, well, I want to encourage you to begin thinking about the steps of transitioning from the faith of your parents to your faith. Transitioning from simply doing what you do because mom or dad or uncle uh, encourages you or expects you to do so and transitioning to, I do what I do because of my relationship with the Lord. I do what I do because it's what I know to be right before God. And that's what we are going to try to um, emphasize this evening. And we begin our story several chapters back in Second Chronicles 22. And our story begins with a king whose name is Ahaziah. He was the grandson of a very godly man. That man's name is Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat was a godly king. Jehoshaphat had a son, and he had a grandson named Ahaziah. Now, Second Chronicles 22.3 tells us that Ahaziah was a wicked 
king. He walked in the ways of a wicked man named Ahab. Ahab was a king in the northern tribes of Israel, and he was a very wicked king. And it says in the scriptures that Ahaziah walked in the ways not of his fathers in Judah, but of his, in fact, stepfather, Ahab. For we see in this passage that you see before you, Second Chronicles 22, 2 and 3, Forty and two years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. So his mother uh, was connected to Ahab and, and to Omri, who was Ahab's father. And then you had uh, um, Ahaziah, who was under the counsel of his mother to do wickedly. Now the scriptures tell us of Ahab's wickedness. He was an excessively wicked man, but for whatever reason the Bible does not say, but I have my theories, King Jehoshaphat really wanted to strengthen ties with Ahab. And one of the ways he sought to do this was to form a military alliance with Ahab, this wicked king. And in, as a part of this military alliance, he married off his son to Ahab's daughter, and that started all the problems. Two things I'll say about that. One day we'll preach through it. First, Jehoshaphat thought he could unite the nations in order to reform Israel, and he thought he could do so by compromising his own standards to work with them. In the end, they did not change. Israel did not change. And this man, Jehoshaphat, died. His children were ruined. And the legacy of compromise was perpetuated. Compromise does that. Compromise never brings the evil over to the good. We've said it this way many times. When the dirty's with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner. The clean gets dirtier. This is why we believe in and why we preach both personal and ecclesiastical separation. Because we as a church or we as individual Christians can't go around uh, allying ourselves with the world or allying ourselves with um, wicked people and expect any good to come of it. It never has worked that way. It never will work that way. As a pastor of mine says, a pastor friend of mine, excuse me, says, compromise is a slippery slope. You never stop sliding until you hit the bottom. The other thing, secondly, we talked about it last week in our warning about the dangers of failing to train our children properly and the dangers of failing to live out a godly example before them. Here we see a situation where a parent's personal refusal, that would be Jehoshaphat's personal refusal, to separate from the world, it didn't so much affect his relationship with God as much as it affected his son's and his grandson's relationship with God. Jehoshaphat mingled with the world. He allowed his son to mingle with the world and his son became wicked and was soon destroyed by his own wickedness. So these are some lessons that one day we'll, we'll park on a little bit more as we consider the man Jehoshaphat and his compromise. But back to our story. Jehoshaphat's son was named Jehoram and he was married to the daughter of Ahab. Jehoshaphat, the godly king, dies and his son then becomes king. And the first act of Jehoram after he became king, was to kill all of his brothers. See, he didn't want any competition for the throne. And no doubt, under the advice or under the counsel of his wicked wife, who was Ahab's daughter, 
she said, if you don't want anybody to mess with your throne, if you don't want any competition, kill them all. So he did so. He had all of his brothers killed and he alone remained. Now, according to Second Chronicles 21.18, God's response to Jehoram's wickedness was to smite him with a terrible and incurable disease. He died a horrible, painful death over the course of two years. And the Scriptures tell us that this king was so despised in Judah that he was not even buried in the sepulcher of the kings. The Scriptures tell us in Second Chronicles 21.20, he departed without being desired. How would you like that to be on your tombstone? This person departed without being desired. No one loved him. No one cared for him. He was a wicked man, thought only of himself. He departed without being desired. Well, we come back to now Ahaziah. Ahaziah is the son of Jehoram, the grandson of godly king Jehoshaphat. And Ahaziah, like his father, walked in the wicked ways of Ahab. His mother, of course, was Jehoram's wife. She was a wicked man or woman. She was the daughter of Ahab. And she continued to influence her son. Well, that brings us to Second Chronicles 22, verses 8 and 9. And the Scriptures tell us, it came to pass that when Jehu was executing judgment upon the house of Ahab and found the princes of Judah and the sons of the brethren of Ahaziah that ministered to Ahaziah, he slew them and he sought Ahaziah and they caught him for he was hid in Samaria and brought him to Jehu. And when they had slain him, they buried him. It was not long before Ahaziah, this other wicked king, his sin caught up with him. He was still in an alliance with the wicked house of Ahab, and as Jehu, a man sent by God to destroy Ahab and his house, destroyed the house of Ahab, he also killed Ahaziah and his servants. And so, Ahaziah is now dead. But you know, the soap opera doesn't end there. Things are going to get even crazier. Because now, Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab, decides this is her moment to usurp the throne from David. And she does exactly that. If you have your Bibles open, please look with me in Second Chronicles 22. We'll read verses 10 through 12. But when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed the seed royal of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons that were slain, and put him and his nurse in a bedchamber. So Jehoshabeah, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah, so that she slew him not. And he was with the, and he was with them hid in the house of God six years, and Athaliah reigned over the land. For six years, this wicked woman reigned in Israel. As soon as her son was dead, she said, I am going to be queen, and so she killed every child of Jehoram, her own son, except for one whom her daughter rescued because she was married to the high priest who was a godly man. 
And she had been thus redeemed from the wickedness that her family had been a part of. And she rescued this one young man, Jehoram, from death. And for six years they hid him while this wicked woman reigned over Israel. Satan did his best to destroy the line of David, but God allowed it to be preserved through this young man, Joash. Ahaziah's son. Now it was the wife of Jehoiada the priest, Jehoshabeth, who hid the one-year-old Joash and patiently waited for the right time to allow him to take his place as king. Second Chronicles 23 is the account of Joash being placed back into, in, into power. The wicked queen Athaliah is slain in Joash's seventh year. And in the seventh year of his life, he becomes king of Israel. And the acts that follow his coronation are described in Second Chronicles 23, verses 16 through 21. The scriptures tell us in Jehoiada, made a covenant between him and between all the people and between the king that they should be the Lord's people. Then all the people went out to the house of Baal and break it down and break his altars and his images in pieces and slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altar. Also Jehoiada appointed the officers of the house of the Lord by the hand of the priests of um, the Levites, whom David had distributed in the house of the Lord, to offer burnt offerings of the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicings and with singings as it was ordained by David. And he set the porters at the gates of the house of the Lord that none which was unclean in anything should enter in. And he took the captains of hundreds and the nobles and the governors of the people and all the people of the land and brought down the king from the house of the Lord. And they came through the high gate into the king's house and set the king upon the throne of the kingdom. And all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet after that they had slain Athaliah with the sword. So the scriptures tell us that when Joash became king, he began very, very well. With the help of his adopted father, Jehoiada, the high priest, they tore down the altars of Baal. They killed the priests of Baal. They undid so much of what the, his father and his grandfather had done, and they began to do right in the sight of the Lord. He strengthened the house of the Lord. He brought righteousness back to the land. But I ask you a question. How is it that a seven-year-old would have such wisdom and leadership to do all of that? How is it that a seven-year-old boy would have such wisdom? Well, our answer comes in his adopted father, Jehoiada. Notice what Second Chronicles 24, verses 1 and 2 tells us. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Zebiah of Beersheba, and Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Notice this last phrase, all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada the priest was the only father Joash had ever known. Since the age of one year old, Joash had sat under the teachings and under the guidance of this man, this godly man, this godly high priest. And there's absolutely no doubt that the early reforms that happened during the life of Jehoiada, or uh, during the life of um, Joash, were led by Jehoiada's counsel and Jehoiada's wisdom. 
But as with every father or father figure, there would come a day when Jehoiada would die. And his son must go on on his own. This is where things become very tragic. That day is described in chapter 24, verses 15 and 16. But Jehoiada waxed old and was full of days when he died, and hundred and thirty years old was he when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel both toward God and toward his house. So this man was so godly and he had done so much good that even though he was just the high priest, they buried him with the kings. What a man that had done such a good job of leading young Joash into righteousness and helping him lead the country into that which was right, that they buried him with the kings. But now look at verse 17 and following. Now after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. Then the king hearkened unto them. And they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their trespass. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord? that ye cannot prosper. Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath forsaken you. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, The Lord look upon it and require it. Can I tell you what just happened here? Joash is saved from his wicked grandmother at age one. He's brought into the house of Jehoiada who raises him until age seven when he is placed on the throne by Jehoiada. He's led kindly by Jehoiada into righteousness all the years Jehoiada is alive. Jehoiada dies. Joash turns away from the Lord. So God sends the prophets to call the nation back to him. One of those prophets is blood son of Jehoiada, a young man named Zechariah. As it were, we call him perhaps a stepbrother to Joash the king. They had most likely grown up together. They had most likely spent their great deal of time together. After all, Zechariah was Jehoiada's son. Joash was Jehoiada's adopted son, if you will. When Zechariah stood up according to the word of the Lord and denounced the wickedness of the land, surely we would think Joash would listen to his adopted brother, right? To his stepbrother. Surely he would honor the memory of his adopted father and turn back to the Lord, right? No. Verse 22 tells us that when Zechariah stood up and said, you are not doing what the Lord wants you to do, Joash sent men to kill him and they stoned him with stones. And in doing so, Joash slandered the memory of the man who raised him, placed him upon the throne and counseled him in the way of the Lord. This really is an unfortunate story that's full of sorrow. 
but unfortunately, it's one that in many ways we see paralleled in the lives of Christians today all around this country. Joash was a young man that was loyal to the Word of God for as long as his godly mentor lived. But as soon as he was on his own, as soon as he no longer had his godly mentor around, he forsook the Lord and followed after the counsel of wicked men. He was a man who, regardless of those actions he had performed in his youth, never actually transferred his faith from his mentor to himself. So when his mentor was gone and his faith was tested, he crumbled under its weight and fell headlong into a life of sin. And young people and parents, this is our warning this evening. God forbid that the children in this room should only serve the Lord as long as they are under our authority. God forbid that as soon as your children leave the house, they would listen to the counsel of ungodly people and they would fall head over heels into a life of sin. Now, of course, the greatest way you can ensure that they do not do this is to make sure that your children are born again, to make sure that they have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make sure that they recognize Jesus as their personal Savior and they have a personal relationship and they're bearing the fruit of the Spirit out in their lives. But I would also caution us through three example, or three applications this evening about the necessity of ensuring that we are helping our children transfer our faith that they're following into their faith in the living God. Three applications. I want to talk to the children first, and I want to ask you a question, children. Children, are you serving the Lord by obeying your parents? Are you serving the Lord by obeying your parents? See, there's an age where just following your parents' expectations is right and is good. And as children, this is the command. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Obey your parents. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. When your parents tell you to read your Bible, you obey. When your parents tell you to memorize verses, you obey. When your parents tell you to go to church, you obey. That's what you are expected to do. But children, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, my question is why? Are you just doing it because it's what parents, your parents have told you and if you don't do what your parents say, then you're going to lose privileges? Or are you obeying your parents specifically because you desire to serve the Lord? Is it just you copying your parents or do you have a personal relationship that is compelling you to obey your parents and to follow the framework of religion that they've set into your life? There is a time when you are very little that you obey your parents simply because you're expected to. When you disobey, they chasten you in love with the expectation that you will respond. But as you get older, you begin to understand about more about why they ask you to do what you do. You're part of a family. Your parents are trying to protect you. Your parents have your best interests in mind. They also have direct control over your privileges, do they not? Direct control over if you can go outside, how often you can go outside, if you can watch TV, if you can play video games, if you can 
have whatever it is. So, so there are reasons why you would be compelled to obey them. But if one of the reasons why you are compelled to obey your parents is not because the Lord tells you to, then there's something wrong. If you are not obeying your parents because you want to please the Lord, then you need to search your heart and find why you're not interested in pleasing the Lord, young people. Because one of the great reasons why you are told to obey your parents according to the Word of God is because it is right. Because it is what God has told us to do. Now, my daughters are not of the age where they understand that. They're expected to obey, and if they don't obey, they get consequences, and that's no fun. And they don't want consequences, so they obey. But for those of you that are a little bit older in this room, that should not be the only reason why you obey your parents. By your age, you should understand that obeying your parents is obeying the Lord. And so you obey your parents because you desire to obey the Lord. As you get older still, you begin to feel as though sometimes obeying your parents is not in your best interest. They begin asking you to do things that you just don't want to do. They're asking you to do things and you don't see the reason for them. At that point, the thing that keeps you obeying them is your love for the Lord. The Bible tells you to obey God because this is right in the eyes of God. And because by obeying your parents, you are obeying God. And so in this first point, the, the question is, are you serving the Lord by, by obeying your parents? Why do you obey your parents? Because they can take away the TV? Because they can take away your outdoor privileges? Because they can take away your friends? Or are you obeying your parents because you want to serve the Lord? And the Lord commands you to obey your parents. If you don't have that motivation now, children, the next steps are going to become harder. Parents, if you don't see the compulsion for your children to obey because they desire to serve the Lord, then you should probably start doing some extra training because it's going to get a lot harder if they're not compelled to serve, to obey by serving because they want to serve the Lord. Because then we come to our, our next point, our second point. Your children will transition into young adults. I hate the word teenager. I don't like it. I try not to use it. There's really no scriptural foundation for a middle ground between child and adult. In the scriptures, we see people, they were children until they became an adult. One day, they stopped being a child and they started being an adult. This middle ground where you have all of the privileges with none of the responsibilities is a sham. And so, teenager... I understand it. It's vernacular. It's in our culture. That's fine. I don't have a, anything inherently against it, but I don't like it. I like using young adults. Parents, there's going to be a time where your young people, your children, turn into young adults. Their faith is going to begin to transfer. They begin thinking for themselves. This was that time, those teenage years, 13 to 18. These young people are seeking for reasons for parents' actions like they never have before. They're looking for that which is real. And young people, you begin to care much more about what others think of you as well. You're beginning to see that there are other motivations for actions than simply your parents. You're beginning to broaden your horizons and perhaps start following other people than just your parents as role models. 
Maybe a teacher becomes a role model or a pastor becomes a role model or an uncle or an aunt becomes a role model. Your world begins to broaden beyond just your parents. That can be a kind of a scary place for a parent to be as their child's world begins to broaden, as they begin to choose other role models and other mentors. You young people desire to be in charge of your own decisions and to make those decisions based upon your own choices and for your own reasons. You desire that independence. And you know, this is not a bad thing, young people. It's not. This is you transitioning from childhood to adulthood. But until the day that you get married or until the day that your parents otherwise release you from their authority, you're required to obey them. And this puts you into an interesting spot, young adults. Until this point, you have been content to serve the Lord by obeying your parents. You serve, you obey your parents, you serve the Lord by doing so, what they say is what you do. But now you have more privilege and more responsibility. Your parents are starting to allow you to make decisions on your own. They're starting to trust you to go do things on your own. They are placing more responsibility in your hands and you have to decide what to do with it. And as this transition takes place, you will come to this point in your spiritual life, young people, where you have decisions to make. Why do you go to church? That's going to come up in your mind one day. Why should I even go to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why should you read your Bible? Why should you memorize Bible verses? If you do not have your parents telling you what to do, what would you do on a Sunday? Would you be in church if your parents didn't make you? Would you be there if your parents didn't say you had to? If you didn't have your parents telling you what to wear or what to watch or what to say or where to go, what choices would you make? The question, young adults, is this. Are you, as you begin to grow in your freedoms and make your own decisions and assert your own will, where do you stand with God? Are you still going to church as a young adult simply because mom and dad tell you to? Are you still reading your Bible only because dad says you have to read your Bible every morning? Is there any part of your devotion to God and to religion that is rooted in your relationship with God or is it all rooted exclusively in your relationship to your parents? Now, we all develop and mature spiritually at different rates. But young adults, or those that will be young adults soon, there's coming a day when you'll make your own decisions. There's coming a day where, like Joash, you won't have a parent anymore that's telling you what to do and, and why to do it and where to go. There's coming a day where you will decide whether or not you go to church, where you will decide whether or not you read your Bible, where you will decide whether or not you go there or watch that or do that or say that. And so my question is this. As a child, are you compelled to obey your parents by serving the Lord? Are you compelled by a love for God? Young adults, as you transition into more responsibility and as your parents give you that responsibility, are you 
starting to transition your parents' faith into your faith? Are you starting to make the spiritual decisions not because your parents tell you to, but because you want to? Do you have any personal relationship with God is the question. Do you have any personal relationship with God? Or is your relationship nothing more than a extension of what your parents have told you to do? Is that the extent of your relationship with God? Is simply what your parents have told you to do? Or are you building a personal relationship, forming personal habits of godliness, making personal decisions for the Lord? See, young Joash had a good reign until the day his spiritual mentor Jehoiada died. Then scriptures tell us after Jehoiada's death, Joash fell into idolatry and went so far as to kill his adopted brother for daring to tell him that his actions were ungodly. Young people, what's going to happen to you when your parents are no longer there telling you that you need to go to church? That you need to read your Bible? That you need to pray? Are you going to continue? Or are you done? You've served your time. Now you can go, as we talked about this morning, See what the world has to offer. If you're developing a personal relationship with the Lord, then that relationship will continue regardless of who expects it of you. If you, young people, have your own personal relationship with God, then regardless of whether someone's telling you you should go to church, or regardless of whether someone's telling you you should read your Bible, or regardless of whether or not someone's telling you to pray, you will. And you will because you love God. But if you're failing to maintain a personal relationship with the Lord, if you're just following in your parents' shadow, then when you're out of their authority, what's going to happen? Third point. This point's for parents. Parents, as your children live, as they go to church and read their Bible and all those things you ask of them, are you asking them to serve their Lord or are you asking them to serve your Lord? It is not my intent to scare you today, parents. In fact, I have prayed for each of you by name that this message would not cause you undue anxiety as well as many that aren't here to hear it. But I do counsel you this evening, particularly in regard to those who are young adults, 13 to 18. You've watched your little boys and your little girls as they blossom into young men and young ladies. Their transformation is not just physical, it is emotional, it is mental, and it is spiritual. They want to make their own choices. They want personal independence. They want personal freedoms. And you are wrestling with how much freedom do you give them? How much do you allow them to do on their own? Should you trust them to make the right choices? Can you trust them to make the right choices? Uh, how far should you allow them to... Be, how far should you let the leash out? Well, may I encourage you not to 
flat out reject their desire for independence. Don't hold them so close that you suffocate them. You all know that probably better than I do. I'm, of course, not saying that you allow them to do whatever you want. You should not allow them to follow the path of sin under your own roof. But what I am saying is that these years of young adulthood are years through which you can carefully evaluate your children's spiritual maturity and help them to foster thriving personal relationships with God. Let me put it to you this way. You keep your thumb on your children until the day they leave for college. Until that day, they have always done what you have asked them to do and they've only ever done it because you've asked them to do it. They go to college and all of a sudden, they go crazy. Parents have that fear, right? How much better would it have been if you'd have started giving them freedoms at 13, 14, 15 and start observing the choices they're making with their freedoms? You give them freedom to make their own choice in regard to some personal issues of faith and you see what they do. They decide they don't want to read their Bible. You've given them the choice to do so or not and for three weeks now you've watched as they haven't opened their Bible once. Well now instead of you having forced them to read their Bible until the day they leave the house and now they're out from under your authority and you have no control over them anymore and they are going wild. Now at age 13, 14, and 15, you can sit down with your children and you can begin to counsel them as to how they ought to have a personal relationship with the Lord and you can help them build it because you've pinpointed areas in their lives where they're not devoted to the Lord themselves. And so if we keep our thumbs too heavily on our children to where they have no ability to express themselves personally, then we are not going to see who they are until it's too late. If you allow them to start to make personal decisions and you see how their own personal relationship with the Lord begins to develop or doesn't develop, then you, as a parent who still has the authority over them, who still has the privilege of guiding and directing them according to the Lord, can then begin to guide them and help them erect a personal relationship in their lives with the Lord before they leave the house. So that they don't just leave one day and you say, Oh no, what happened? I thought they loved the Lord. I thought they wanted to do what's right. And now they're gone. Let's start as they begin to transition into wanting more freedoms and as you through prayer and speaking to your spouse feel comfortable doing so be sure to let them have some of that so that the first time is not when they're out of the house and gone how much better is your children grow and mature to test their personal relationship with God while you are still there to influence them how much better to observe their motivations for their actions while you can still protect them from the deceits of the devil. Parents, it is a great temptation to hold on to your children tight because you fear what might happen if you let them go. But remember this, one day you will lose your grip on them. They will not stay your little boy, little girl forever. They can't. They mustn't. How much better to give them some autonomy while you still hold the reins and if they start to stray, you can pull them back in and teach them why what they were doing 
is misdirected. Now, young adults. I'm not asking your parents to manipulate you. To manipulate your thoughts or to manipulate your behaviors this evening. I'm not telling your parents to give you a false sense of freedom so that they can better control you in the long run. That's not what I'm saying to your parents. If I was going to tell them that, I would have asked you to go somewhere else while I talk to them on their own so that I could tell them how to manipulate you without you knowing. That's not what I'm about this evening. That's not why we're here. What I am asking of your parents is that they would test your devotion to God. That they would test your relationship to God to see whether or not you desire to serve the Lord or whether or not you're simply interested in following them. So this third point is to ask parents who you are asking your children to serve. Your children are commanded to obey you, but their obedience is intended to be an extension of their service to God. It's not just obedience for obedience sake, it's obedience for the sake of serving the Lord. If we are not careful, however, our children will only do what they do in this life because they don't want to disappoint their parents or they don't want to get in trouble. And this is crummy motivation. It really is. How would you feel if you knew that your young adult children only go to church because they knew if you didn't, or if they didn't, you would be upset? You shouldn't say, well, wonderful, at least they're in church. You should rather say, well, why don't my children want to be in church? Why don't they want to be there? What's wrong that they're not interested in hearing the preaching of God's Word and singing songs and fellowshipping among God's people? Why don't they have a deep personal desire to be among believers? How would you feel if you knew that your young children, your young adult children only read their Bible and memorized because you expected them to? Now, when they're young, this is important, even though they don't understand why they should read their Bible and all the benefits they need to be exercised in the knowledge of the Lord. But as they get older, you should be concerned if your child has no personal desire to grow in their knowledge of the Lord. King Joash was a young man who did amazing godly things in his youth. I could easily preach a message to our youth about how to serve God properly through the example of King Joash. But when his spiritual accountability was gone, parents and young people, he did not have enough inward personal love for God and personal determination to continue serving the Lord to persevere. And in the end, his own servants killed him upon his bed for retribution for the terrible way that he requited the love of his adopted father Jehoiada that the priest had shown to him. Parents, I don't know the fear that accompanies watching your children transition from childhood to adulthood. I'm not there yet. My girls are two and a half years old. My son is two weeks old. I don't know the fear as I watch them begin to want to step out on their own. The, the concerns that come with them wanting to make personal decisions. The wondering as to whether or not you're doing the right thing. I don't know any of those fears yet, but as we close today, let me just close by saying this. 
My teen years were filled with some conflict, and many of you know this if you were around for my testimony last year uh, during my ordination. My teen years were filled with some con conflict in my heart, a desire to serve the Lord, but a lack of motivation to do so. I often say that if I had had just one person sit me down and start to question me about my own spiritual health, it may have it may have bumped up my decision to serve the Lord with all my heart by several years. That decision for me was made when I was 19 years old. It could have probably been made when I was 15. Maybe even earlier. But because I was a kid that was very interested in pleasing my parents and very interested in, in looking like a good kid, which I, I was, in a manner of speaking. I was a believer. I generally did what was right, but I had some pretty big problems on the inside. And if I had just had someone prove my faith a little bit, just have someone inquire as to why I did what I did a little bit, things might have been very different. Now, I thank the Lord for what He did in my life and how He did it, and uh, I wouldn't change a thing because it shaped me into who I am today. But, parents, don't be afraid to probe spiritual life of your children. Don't be afraid to see if what they're doing, they're doing simply to please the church or please the parents or please some external form of system of rules. Don't be afraid to see if that's their motivation or if their motivation is truly an actual love for God and a compulsion to serve Him. Don't be afraid to know your child's spiritual health, to test your child's spiritual health. To put a few tests in front of them to see how they do. They're going to pass or they're going to fail for the Lord. And then to take the results of that test and use it to guide them. I mean, we do it in every other area of life, right? We test our children in school to see where their strengths and their weaknesses are, and then we, we help them continue in their strengths, and then we help them reinforce their weaknesses. If we didn't test children, then we'd never know what their weaknesses were, and then we could never correct them. We do it physically, do we not? We take them to the doctor and we see where they're healthy and we see where they're not and we get corrections for the parts of their physical body that are not healthy. They get glasses. They need an inhaler because they have asthma. Um, whatever, they need braces to straighten out their teeth. We find the areas of weakness in their lives and we correct them, right? We test them. We find areas of weakness and we correct them. Why don't we do it spiritually, parents? Why aren't we seeking to find the areas of our children's lives that are weak in the faith? Test them, find out what's weak, and then correct it. Instead of just burying our heads in the sand and saying, well, hopefully they'll hear what Pastor had to say in church on Sunday, and hopefully uh, through some Bible reading and, and they'll, they'll, they'll figure it out and just kind of let them go and see what happens. That's a lot of variables. So, young people, are you serving the Lord or are you just obeying your parents?
Are you serving the Lord or just walking in your parents' shadow? What's your compulsion this evening? Young adults, as you transition into young adulthood, as you start to make these decisions for yourself, do you have any desire personally to serve the Lord? Do you have any desire at all to know God, to walk in His Word, to fellowship with believers, to see people one to Christ? Any desire? You should. It shouldn't just be mom and dad or uncle telling you what to do. And then finally, parents. Are you helping your children serve the Lord? Are you helping them transition from it being your faith that they follow to their faith that they follow? Or are they just going to be stuck in your shadow till the day they leave and then you just hope, hope, hope that something made it through? Let's not leave it to chance. Let's allow the Word of God and our responsibility as parents to do its work while we have it before they leave the house. Let's pray together.